I wonder if you're familiar with these amazing women. I wonder if you can jog your memories, the history books, to think of these, of course, the suffragettes. They, in the early um, 20th century, fought for votes for women. They fought for freedom for women to vote uh, equally to men. And this was a long fight. It took until 1928 until they were able to have the full vote, women, all women of all class um, and age were able to have the full vote. And it was a long fight for many reasons, but one of the key reasons that it was a long fight was to do with the apathy of the British people. You know, it was really, it was really good for a lot of people in those days. <laughs> the status quo, it was, you know, it was kind of, why would you change it? What would you, why would you change something that works for so many people? And yet these women, they had to fight against such, a, such persecution in these days, and they stood their ground. Why did they do it? Why did they do it? They had a longing burning in them for something more. They had to do something to make people sit up and listen. They had all sorts of tactics to get people to do this, but uh, and many of them landed them in prison. And actually, even in prison, we see some of the most shocking things. You can read about them in the accounts um, of a lot of the suffragettes. A lot of them went on hunger strike when they went in prison just to make the government sit up and listen to their plight even when they were imprisoned. If you've seen the film The Suffragette, you'll know that many of the women had their own children taken away from them because they were seen to be unfit mothers. I mean, the cost was huge. And they must, they must have led in their beds, uh, in their prison cells, if they had beds in prison cells, they must have led there thinking, is this worth it? Is it worth it? Surely nothing's really going to change. And yet, they saw the change. They fostered this longing within them. They fostered it in each other. They curated it in the depths of their souls. They stirred it in themselves and in each other and saw the fruit of their longing. And now we live in the legacy of their longing. I stand here in part in the legacy of their longing. I wonder about you this morning. I wonder if you experienced the kind of longing that we see in the life of the suffragettes. Maybe some of you will be able to answer me straight away and say, yes, I have that kind of longing. But I suspect most of us would struggle to identify with that level of longing. See, when I, think about, when I think about the church today, our church and the church wider than us, and I think about the problems, the challenges the church faces, you know, is it division, is it infighting, is it progressiveness, a fear of man? Yeah, it's all of those things. But when I think about the thing that's deep in our bones, that weighs us down, I think the problem we're facing is one of apathy. We're distracted we're overwhelmed with information. We, we're afraid of what might be inside of us, of the passion that might be inside of us. So we, we numb ourselves. We think, you know, actually, if I just numb, if I just suppress this, if I just push it down, the things that disturb me, that's a safer way to live. We bought into it in the church. But the thing about numbing is, is that it's not a selective process. We see this in with drugs and alcohol, even legal drugs, antidepressants. You can't just numb the bit that hurts. 
You can't just pinpoint the pain and say, I'll numb that bit and everything else can stay alive. The problem with numbing is that it numbs everything. And I think that's what we've done in the world around us and in the church too. And you see, the problem with that is that it's left us apathetic to many things, but the key problem for us is that it's left us apathetic in our relationship with God. Psalm 42 that Katie read to us this morning starts with these words. You probably know them, but I wonder if you've engaged with them before. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, God. Do you pant for God? It's kind of an uncomfortable question. It feels a bit embarrassing. It's not about emotion necessarily. It's not about whether you're an emotional person or not. I've seen the most level-headed of people get passionate about what they love. Do you pant for God? When I ask myself that question, on a deep level, I think I can say yes. I I think in my own soul, and I think the soul of every human being on the planet, I think we have a deep longing for God, for for our connection with our creator. But do I think about that longing, do I experience it on a day-to-day in that, in that level of intensity? I'm, I'm not sure I can honestly say I do. See, John Mark Homer says our strongest desires aren't always our deepest desires. And, you know, we're afraid of our strong desires, so we suppress them. But Alan Scott says that our longings are the autopilot of our lives. So if we don't direct our desires, our, directs, our, our desires are going to direct us. So we've got this problem on our hands. How do we stoke the fire in us so that we can burn for God without sort of being let loose in all of the things that can overwhelm us? We want to have the kind of longing that changes the future. That's what we're after this morning. We have to find a way of tapping into the desire and longing within us. And I think our second reading this morning, a character we meet here, gives us a model to follow. She's called Anna. She's one of my heroes of the Gospels. And, you know, she just gets a few verses dedicated to her. And yet the legacy of her longing is that she gets to meet the Messiah. And she knows who he is when he comes. She knew what she was looking for, so she recognized him immediately. She was one of the only Jews who did, you know. That's extraordinary. She knew him as a child, that he was the Messiah. And if we were sort of to ask how Anna curated this kind of longing in her being, in her soul, you might say, oh, well, Joe, she was just one of those holy types. You know, she was a prophet. She knew. But I, I think Scripture's quite clear here about, about how she curated her longing. And it's just in one of these few verses we've, we've got on her. It says this about her. She worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Now, you might be familiar with two of those things. We talk about worship and prayer quite a lot here at Trinity. But I I wonder what you feel when you hear the word fasting. For some of you, your stomachs might already be sinking. You're thinking, oh, no, she's speaking on fasting. That means I'm going to have to think about it. 
There might be others of you that think, great, oh yeah, I've got so many, what a lifetime of testimony of how God has moved in my life through fasting. I'm grateful for you this morning. I'm grateful for your stories. I'm grateful for it as I start my journey in fasting. But I suspect that most of us fall into two camps this morning. Camp one, maybe you're thinking, nah, thanks Joe, not for me. It's a bit try hard. It's all about grace, right, isn't it? And then second camp, fasting for you is all about proving your mettle, proving that you care about things enough and that you're tenacious enough, a bit like the suffragettes maybe. Well, I want to speak into a few of these things this morning and see if we can get a little bit clearer on what God's heart for fasting is and actually how it might be a tool in our hands that some of us may be using, but many of us, I suspect, won't be. What does the Bible say about it? Well, to start, to start with, we've got to be clear. Fasting this morning, as we're talking about it, and I think as the Bible talks about it, we're talking about fasting food as a spiritual discipline. Now, lots of things have been said about different, different forms of fasting, fasting social media, fasting chocolate for Lent, fasting TV. Now, all of those things have great value in them, and I'd really encourage you to do them, depending on what you find um, a challenge in your life. But there's something about fasting food that I think we can't get away from purely because it is so disruptive to our lives to fast food. There is a disruption that fasting food brings to our life that I don't think we can get through any other means of fasting. So that's what we're talking about this morning, fasting food. And in the Bible, honestly, I haven't found it yet. If, if there is one, please email me. There's no command that says Christians must fast. There's nothing that I can find that, that commands it, but there are multiple times that assume that it is a Christian practice. We see it through the early church, practices of fasting, and ultimately we, we see that Jesus assumes that his followers will fast. In Matthew 6, he starts a sentence, when you fast, which assumes that he thinks you will. A few chapters later in Matthew 9, he's speaking about his disciples and saying that when he leaves them, they will fast. And we're in these times, this, these strange times. We, we're in a time between times. Jesus has come to earth. He has taken on the sin of the world on his shoulders. He's died. He's risen again. He's ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we are awaiting his return as king of our earth. And as Johnny said last week, it's an active waiting we're actively waiting in prayer and in action for the coming of our King. So we're speaking about fasting this morning in that context. We're fasting with the Holy Spirit. There's no separation between us and God here. This isn't a way of proving ourselves. But how does it change things? What does fasting look like for us? Well, I'd love just to do some myth busting this morning. Maybe thinking about what fasting is and it isn't. First of all, fasting is not suppression, but redirection. We've touched on this already, but fasting in its essence reveals what actually controls you. It shows you what you might be putting in place of God. I love food. I mean, I can't tell you how difficult a practice this is for me. I have avoided it in every which way I could find. But honestly, this, is, this isn't saying food is bad. Fasting is not saying food is bad. Fasting is saying, give up the good things in your life to feast on the best thing in your life, which is God. 
And actually, there's something about this that retrains this autopilot that we're speaking of earlier, the longings of our hearts. There's something about the practice of fasting that brings this sort of um, awareness of ourselves that we, that we so often just sort of forget about in the busyness of life. And it's really good, you know, to remind your body and your soul what it needs. I find when I fast, um, often I get to this point in the day, it's usually about 11 o'clock, you know, I'm starting to struggle, I feel myself getting weaker, and I start to panic. I start to feel my blood pressure go up, I start to get anxious. It's because I'm realizing that actually I'm struggling, and I don't actually know whether I can get through it. I'm anxious that I need more than God to get me through the next thing on my calendar, to do a normal day without eating. And actually, this level of anxiety helps me tap into other anxieties, deeper anxieties in my heart, that actually the the things that I think I need, so I'm afraid I'm going to lose. That's what anxiety is, right? It helps me tap into those things. And, And I go through this sort of dark night of the soul around midday, And if I stick with it, which I haven't always, I will confess, but when I do, when I stick with that fast, I usually get to about three o'clock. I I sort of know the feeling now. I know how to recognize it. And this peace comes upon me. And I, because I just, I'm aware suddenly that God is all I need. And there's something about the anxiety in my life that just falls off me in that moment. I just wonder whether fasting could be a real key for us as we face the anxiety that is so rife around us at the moment and within us, of reminding us truly of what our bodies and our souls need. Fasting is not punishment, but weakness. There's been so much damage done in the church around fasting being a way of beating your body into submission, a way of showing it who's boss. Fasting is not this, it's not punishment but it does make us weak. Amy shared with us um, a while ago now, but I think it's right in the DNA of our, sort of, um, of, our, of our bones at Trinity is this prophetic image of a weak army. This army surrendered to Jesus on its knees before God, saying, in your strength, God, not in mine. That's the posture of a disciple. And we see it in Jesus' life in himself. He chooses willingly to go into face his biggest temptation yet in the wilderness, in front of the devil. He chooses to not eat for 40 days. He chooses to make himself physically weak in the face, ultimately, of his biggest enemy. David says in Psalm 69, I humbled my soul with fasting. There is nothing more humbling than fasting. If you think you've got it all together and you're pretty great, fast a few meals, have a baby who throws his food at you at lunchtime and see how together you remain. There's a saying, isn't there, that a lot of us are only a few paychecks away from homelessness. And I think it's true that actually only, for many of us, only, we're only a few meals away from seeing ourselves as we really are our insecurities, our fears, our anger, our apathy. We've got to come to the end of ourselves. And I I honestly believe that as a church, this is key for us. We've got to come to the end of our own strength and say, God, only in your strength can we do this. Fasting is not stirring God's heart 
It's stirring yours. I wonder how many of you can relate to the suffragettes we spoke about at the beginning. This sort of idea of we've got to get God to sit up and listen. We've got to twist his arm in some way to show him that this is worth his time. I wonder how many of us think about fastening that sort of equation way. There's nothing in scripture that shapes God into a transactional God. He is purely relational. We can't get stuff out of him in that way. God cares deeply about his creation. He just wants you to. He wants you to care deeply about his creation. He wants me to care deeply about his creation. There's nothing that delights his heart more than a disciple who chooses to be disrupted, to be disturbed for his heart, for his creation. And it's fasting is ultimately far more about our posture towards God and towards his people than it is about God's posture. Fasting, you see, it disrupts our routines enough that actually we can make space for him to seek his heart. John Tyson says that intimacy with God releases an intensity in the activity of God in our lives. And you know, when God's longings are set free in his people, I mean, all bets are off. What can happen? What's going to be the legacy of our longing? Now, you might be tempted to try it. But let me just give you a few tips as we come into land. A few things that I've found, I'm really early on in my journey with this. Um, but I just want to lay these things before you as something that might be, you know, if you, you're sat there this morning thinking, gosh, that's way, that's way beyond my pay grade. I, I'm not holy enough for that. Let me tell you, it's for you. It's for you as much as it's for me. I, have, I am the kind of person that scrolled through scripture to try and find an excuse to not fast. I'm that kind of person. And yet I have seen breakthrough in my own heart through this practice, probably more than most things I've tried. Start small. Don't be heroic about it. Don't try and do a 40-day fast out of nothing. I've found the traditional Lenten fast to be really helpful. That's when you just fast during the day. And then when it gets dark, you sort of have a celebratory feast. And, and that's been a really helpful way for me to start. And sometimes as well, having fruit juices, things like that can really help your body just acclimatize um, to getting used to it. When, it's, when we're talking about length, I go regularity over duration. Length, it really is just about what stretches you. What stretches you to lean in to God? That's the main thing here. That's the point of fasting. Don't worry too much about how long you do it for, but worry more about the habits you're creating in your life. Because actually that regularity, it takes the pressure off the results. And this, this whole result mindset, it really got me stuck for a long time with fasting. But if you want, if you want a win that you're looking for with fasting, the win is connection with God. That's how you can judge whether your fast is working or not. Let go of striving. Allow yourself a slower pace. You might be surprised at how much time, how much space opens up. Concede the defeat of self-will. Stop trying. You know, a key indicator, if you're, if you're doing it in your own strength, is whether you're getting grumpier and harder on the outside. If you're less fun to be around, 
That's not a good, that's not a good sign. If you're getting softer, that means you're leaning into God's strength. So just be aware of your own sort of mood throughout the day. And when you feel yourself getting harder, when you feel yourself um, striving and struggling to be kind and be nice to your family and friends, just pray. Use it as an excuse to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to soften you. And just be aware, if, you, if you're a competitive person, if you have a tendency towards obsession, just beware that this is an area that can, we can get really screwed up over. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't fast. It just means that you should be directing your competition in the right um, angle. So it's not about competing for um, how many days you can go without eating. It's about competing for your connection with God, that you're going to drive yourself in that direction. But particularly if you have an obsessive tendency, and particularly if you have any um, issues with eating disorders, please hear me and, and do not um, go near fasting food. It's just not worth the dynamics and confusion that's uh, going on inside of you. So if that is you, then do go back to um, fasting, social media, TV, other things that may have a hold in your life. And finally, stay in tune with the Holy Spirit. It's the whole point. The marker of a good fast is whether you get to the end of it and you feel in tune with the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit interrupt you. Let your hunger pangs be a reminder to pray. You'll find that your hunger towards God grows as a result of your discipline. Because the whole point of this is our longing. The whole point of this is our hunger for God. This isn't about going through a spiritual discipline, the motions of, of being a good Christian. This is about creating sustainability for revival. We see this in Anna's life. She kept herself hungry for God. The Israelites waited 400 years for the Messiah. Anna waited 84 of her years on her knees in the temple, praying and fasting. She had been waiting, but she was ready. She was ready. She was awake and ready to receive her Messiah when he came because she knew what she was looking for. Apathy is this big enemy that we face in the church, but we can't fix it by trying harder, clenching our fists and doing more. We've got to be willing to disrupt the comfort of our lives, to tap into that passion, that longing inside of us so that we can see the legacy of our longing. Why don't you stand with me?